The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Tony Wagner is a globally recognized voice in education, currently serving as Senior Research Fellow at the Learning Policy Institute. I know you've heard the name before. You're most likely familiar with some of his past work, Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Era, co-authored with Ted Denter-Smith, Creating Innovators, The Making of Young People Who Will Change the World, or perhaps The Global Achievement Gap. But his most recent work takes a turn. It's still about education, deeply about education. It, in fact, it gets to the heart of education. It's a memoir. Tony takes us into his own journey in his most recent book, Learning by Heart, an Unconventional Education. He tells the story of schools where he didn't persist, he dropped out, and how that led to the next part of his journey. It's a fascinating story. I encourage you to check it out, to check out the book. And as with all memoirs, it's not just about the person. It's an invitation for us to ponder our own role, in this case, in education and in the world. It has some profound lessons along the way, as does this conversation with Tony. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Tony, welcome to the EDU Futures Podcast. Great to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I have right in front of me, the listeners can't actually see this, but I have a copy of your new book, Learning by Heart, an Unconventional Education. And for those who are familiar with Tony's work, this is a little different from what they've read in the past, but there are definitely some parallels. So we get a a glimpse into, it's a memoir, so a a glimpse into your life and learning and, and perhaps how that's informed some of the writing that people are familiar with from the past. This is great. I'm really excited about getting into this conversation. Uh, I know that there's been some popularity around a couple of, of memoirs. Obviously, the one Educated, it's been on the New York Best Times list for a while. It's also a really intriguing and very different kind of narrative and story. And, uh, and yours is fascinating. I think I understand uh, Howard Gardner, I think. Is, is he working on a, a memoir as well? Oh, yeah. I think it's out. Or it's out already. It may just be Yes, there's something about that. Maybe this is the decade of the memoir, the educational memoir. Well, I'd love to just get into this. And it's funny because usually the first question I ask people on the podcast is to tell us a little bit about themselves before we dive into the topic. But in some ways, you are the topic. So we get to, we get to just dive into that. But I will ask this question. As we get into this, can you tell a little bit of the story of what led you to write a memoir? Well, you know, I've written, as you know, six books that are reason-based, argument-based analyses of a variety of educational leadership issues. And I really didn't feel I had any new arguments to make. And in my heart, I've always loved storytelling. I've always read, read aloud to my kids when they were young, enjoy reading good novels, good memoirs. And so I really decided to sort of approach some of the same issues in education, but from a very personal perspective, telling stories about 
my own struggles as a learner, not that I had any learning deficit other than the fact that I hated school, Um, but my challenges as a learner, how I had to try to carve learning experiences out for myself, uh, and then how I tried to translate a lot of that experience into my first decade of teaching. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a really powerful read. I hope people uh, check it out, take a look at it. Uh, some great great reviews, by the way, too. Just uh, reading in the front. I don't know, and I know that oftentimes I got this early version. I'm not sure if any of these were changed for actual publication, but. Uh, Diane Ravitch, for example, wrote, I read Tony Wagner's story of his personal journey with great pleasure. He explains how a boy who hated school but loved learning found the education that was just right for him Um, and notes that there are profound lessons here. So let's go ahead and dive into that. And uh, obviously, you start in a particular place in the book. And that's always a question for our memoirs. Where do you start and why? And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Why did you, where did you start and, and why did you choose that as your starting point? Well, I started with my earliest memories of school because from a very early age, school and I just didn't get along. And so I try to chronicle uh, my experiences as best I can recall them from elementary school, middle school, then much more detail in high school, which, you know, in many respects was quite traumatic for me. And then through my various attempts at colleges, um, you know, I dropped out. I, first of all, I was a high school dropout, one-time high school dropout, two-time college dropout, two different colleges, and then spend time describing really an extraordinary set of learning experiences in this small, new, then new progressive college called Friends World. And then finally on to my experiences, uh, first as a master's student at Harvard, and then in my, my first decade of my teaching career, and along the way, described the total disaster that was my several years as a, as a middle school principal and ending with my work on my doctorate at Harvard. One of the things I, I love about the book is, I mean, you talk about, and I'm, uh, the word that comes to mind, even if it's not the word that you chose, is some people might look at it and these might be perceived or interpreted as failures. Right. And in, in the current context. Right. <laughs> um, and they might see it as a, sort of a series of perte- perpetual failures. And it's, a, it's about sort of what you've learned from that. But it doesn't seem to me that's exactly how you framed it. And I wouldn't frame it that way either. I mean, how would you describe it? Well, I, as you may know, I'm on a bit of a campaign to get the F word out of school. Right. Because I really think it serves no purpose. The only failure I acknowledge is the failure not to show up, not to try at all. And that wasn't one of my many (laughs) afflictions. Uh, You know, the world of innovation I learned recently in the last 10 years or so during this research is a world of trial and error. Innovation is all about iteration, moving from 1.0 to 2.0. And in fact, I believe all learning is trial and error. How we learn to talk, how we learn to walk. What if somebody said to us, I'm sorry, we're not going to allow you to ride a bike because we know you're going to, quote, fail. You're going to fall down and skin your knee. So I think really uh, we begin with a confession that that learning is in fact trial and error, and we don't acknowledge that. And we furthermore penalize, you know, mistakes. The more mistakes you make, the the lower you are on the bell curve, the more, you know, you're going to fail. And so in part, I wrote the book in a very brutally honest and emotional way to try to dispel the notion that all, quote, mistakes, so-called failures, 
result in disaster. In fact, for me, most of them were really essential learning experiences that were a part of my journey. I do think that there's often a fear. Um, I'm curious who who will read the book the most? I mean, will people be reading it as a learner? Will they be reading it as a parent? Will they be reading it? As, right? There are so many different um, roles that people could have. And uh, I would suspect that some as parents, there's a fear. Like if, if, one is, if one drops out of school, what happens to them? I mean, there's, there's a fear of where that might lead in their lives. And obviously one can conjure all sorts of all sorts of really scary pictures of where that might go. Well, it's interesting. You look at the careers of innovators, the majority of them were, in fact, dropouts. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg. And I think, in fact, what we're really seeing today as a trend in employment is more and more employers saying, I don't care if you went to college. And I don't want your college transcript because it doesn't tell me anything. It's a certificate of seat times served. What I want to know is not what you know, but what you can do with what you know. Tell me about failures you've had and how you've recovered. Tell me about challenges that you've dealt with. So Google has led the pack, and now there are a growing number of employers who don't even ask for a a college degree. In fact, 15% of Google's new hires don't have a BA degree at all. So, you know, it used to be that getting a a college degree was a guaranteed job in a middle-class economy. But that was in the knowledge economy where, you know, you were paid basically for how much you know. But now with knowledge being commoditized, growing exponentially, changing constantly, it's the innovation era. And so the world is simply not going to pay you because you served a lot of seat time in a school. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to, let's add some story to this and really ground it in your experience, because that's really what you do in the book. Um, as, as we go back to this, this sort of high school experience and this you, uh, as dropping out of high school and stepping out, can you just talk, obviously people will hopefully read the book and they'll get the full story, but can you just talk a little bit about uh, why? What, what, what led to, to dropping out? Well, you know, the one subject I, I really enjoyed through high school I'd have to say two years out of four, was English. I loved reading novels. I loved writing. In fact, I profiled the ninth grade English teacher who gave me my first real creative writing assignment. And I was thrilled. It was the first A I'd ever gotten in school. Loved it. And so I was, you know, predisposed to, to, to really looking forward to English. And then along comes my senior English teacher who teaches out of fear and intimidation. And uh, I was at a very second-rate all-boys boarding school. And boys boarding schools, you know, I believe in single-sex education, just not for boys, only for girls. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I, you know, I come back 20 minutes late from curfew one Saturday night, totally legal, just a little bit late. And lo and behold, my nemesis, the senior English teacher, whom we called the mole, was on duty that night. And he comes with this huge 6D cell mag light and shines it in my face. He's kind of a shriveled up man. That's why we called him the mole. And he said, Wagner, you're a screw up. You've always been a screw up. You're always going to be a screw up. Only he didn't use that word. He used the F word. And I was just, this was 1963. Bernard, and I had never heard anyone use that term before, and any adult, at least. I was horrified and shocked. And so I just, I dropped out. I left school the next day. 
uh, finally getting myself into a very third-rate last-chance boarding school where, in fact, there was another English teacher whom I sought out, who's not my regular teacher, and entered into a weekly tutorial on creative writing with him, which, in a sense, was the salvation for me of high school. It was, it was one of the most positive learning experiences at all, all not for credit. I sought him out simply because I wanted to learn to be a creative writer, and he was willing to tutor me. There's so much we could go into. And I look at, you know, the, in terms of the different stories and all. So I apologize that we're jumping over so much <laughs> when, we, when we do this. But at what point along the way did you find yourself developing sort of this growing sense of kind of self-confidence or agency or sense of ownership? What, where were the, what were the big moments for you where kind of the self-education piece really kicked in? Well, you know, as a, as a kind of hungry adolescent in a time of crisis, not so different from our time today, I was trying to make sense of the world. I was trying to make sense of the civil rights movement. I was trying to make sense of the Vietnam era. I, I was horrified at the sort of shadow of nuclear holocaust that hung over all of our lives. And so I began trying to read on my own, trying to make sense of the world. Um, I vividly remember reading uh, John Steinbeck's uh, novel about the Okies. Uh, and and trying to understand poverty in America. Uh, it, it just had a powerful influence on me. And going back even further, I went to a summer camp and I, I learned the skill of accentship from a much older man. He, he, he was actually had been the director of the camp who was retired. And I got the sense of, of really earning, in a sense, a badge. In this case, it was a ribbon, but having developed proficiency over time through perseverance. And I think that that was incredibly key to me, that I, I could see myself being able to persevere and learn something. In this case, it was axemanship, but I later applied that to other things, to writing, to learning about the Vietnam War, to learning about the civil rights movement. And then in this small liberal arts college, my third, uh, learning more about issues of industrialization and their impact. I was li lived in Mexico for a year where I studied. And so... All along the way, I, I began to slowly acquire a sense of myself as being able to learn. And then what finally happened is I went to Harvard for a master's, and I got in, frankly, on a fluke. They had never seen a, uh, a transcript, a college transcript quite like mine. I actually think they let me in because I'd already published a half a dozen articles by the time I was 22. And so I got a Master of Arts in Teaching at Harvard. My lowest grade was A-. minus. I went there terrified. I went there thinking, oh my God, you know, they've let me in by mistake. Uh, I won't last a week. But in fact, even by standards of a so-called rigorous, prestigious university, I did really well. And so that was the beginning for me. But what, what then became the challenge, the new challenge, was learning how to teach in a different way. I wanted to be the kind of teacher I wished I'd always had, but never did. And so I spent a decade of trial and error trying to learn to become a much more effective teacher who really instilled uh, an intrinsic motivation for learning and for creating in my students. Mm. And um, you mentioned briefly about the, the stent as a principal. <laughs> How's Do that we have to talk about that? <laughs> of course, it's in the book. <laughs> the hardest thing of all to write in the book. Uh -huh. You know, I, I was full of hubris. I had by that time kind of conquered the classroom in the sense that I, I really knew how to engage a 
wide variety of kids. I worked at first with in-school dropouts and then with kids in an elite private school where Obama's kids went, Washington, D.C. And so I really had figured out a, a kind of methodology. Um, but I wanted to figure out, all right, so how does this apply to a whole school? What could I do? And so I took a job I, I never should have been offered and I never should have taken. I went straight from being a high school teacher to being an elementary school principal with no elementary experience, no administrative experience. And I was 33 years old. I mean, I was barely wet behind the ears. And I came into a very conflicted situation where some parents were privately concerned that the school was not rigorous enough, either academically or behaviorally, was kind of indulgent. And whereas the, the trustees and the teachers all thought this school was the greatest thing that has ever happened on earth. And I was just had no idea what to do. I'd gone to a 10-day training for new heads that was worse than useless because it suggested all these psychological theories that had no application in real practice. And so I barely lasted a year, a year and a half, and, and we all decided, you know, we tried our best and we called it quits. Never should have taken the job. It was an incredibly painful setback. Here I'd sort of finally figured out the problem of schooling, having gotten a master's from Harvard, and then 10 years of teaching, I sort of finally had figured out, I thought, teaching, and I whammo, fall on my face, and all of the words that that high school teacher said to me on one Saturday night with his flashlights shining in my face came screaming back in my mind. It was horrible. And that's actually, interestingly enough, was the question that I wanted to ask was grounding in, in that statement from that high school teacher. And I'm wondering, where is that voice today and throughout the journey? I mean, is that a voice that's been silenced? Is that a voice that returns? I mean, because this is something lots of people experience. I, I, it may not be the exact same statement, but I think people obviously forget that could be a sentence that sticks with people for decades, for a lifetime. You're absolutely right. I mean, at some level, I've had to overcome uh, a, a fear of those kinds of traumatic setbacks every time I start a new book. Uh, you know, I, I, particularly some of my recent books where I didn't know anything about the world of innovation. I didn't know anything about the world of business. And here I am putting myself out there to, first of all, interview business leaders, learn about innovation, learn about the flat world, and, you know, interviewed very senior military people uh, and, you know, was totally prepared to be told, who, who are you? Who are you to want to interview me? <laughs> but I did it anyway. And now the results, the Global Achievement Gap, it's sold 150,000 copies. Creating innovators will probably end up selling that many, but even more internationally. It's been in 18 translations so far. So, you know, I, I don't know. Where does that come from? That kind of resilience, the grit, the perseverance. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it some combination? I, to me, that's one of the more interesting questions that Angela Duckworth and many others are kind of challenged by. now. Yeah, absolutely. And Angela was on the was on the show a while back. We, we dove into that a little bit. I've not been to her lab, but I'm hoping to get over there sometime once we get through this pandemic a little bit. Um, the um, you know, I think that's really important. And I'm wondering, are there are there phrases in your life experience on the flip side? So you had this really powerful negative emotional experience with that statement. Um, are there similar positive statements that have really sort of 
um, inspired you or kind of kept you going in difficult times in terms as a learner? Well, the unexpected success of the Global Achievement Gap came as a total shock to me, frankly. You know, I'd written three books that had not gotten any particular amount of attention. Uh, I didn't expect anything different with that book or even with Creating Innovators. So that was, to me, I got taking it back a long time. I had come to feel that schools were not failing, at least most schools. Certainly some schools are total failures, and they definitely didn't need reforming. The whole system of education, born at the dawn of the industrial era, in my view, should be considered obsolete and needs reimagining, not reforming. Well, I started writing and talking about that more than 20 years ago. And now, suddenly, that's become the new normal. Everybody seems to be saying that. And I, I, to me, that's just been profoundly validating to feel that, that you know, I've, I've been saying something for a long period of time that now is, has really entered into the popular conversation about education. Yeah, I, I used your book. That actually, I think a month after it came out, I put it in my, my college syllabus I was teaching at the time. And we, <laughs> and we dove into it. I, I had a class on, it was generally, it was for uh, K, K-12 educators. And um, a lot of the course was exploring all these conversations about and 21st century skills was more popular of a phrase back then. So yours was sort of a key piece of, of the conversation, really powerful. Um, I'm wondering also about, um, you know, what are the most, what are the important lessons that you really want people to take away from this book? What are you hoping when people read that last page and they set it down, what are you hoping are the things that will haunt them in a good way? Well, we already touched on some of that. Uh, the fact that kids learn differently and, you know, there's no one size that fits all. Certain kinds of schools absolutely did not fit me and Lo and behold, I was able to find some schools that did fit me. So that's point one. Point two is the whole conversation we just had about failure. I just think that word does not belong in schools at all. And that we ought to understand that all learning is trial and error. And what makes the difference, what makes it learning, is encouraging and nurturing reflection and giving thoughtful feedback as a coach, as a mentor. But I've also been thinking a lot in recent weeks about, so how, what are some things from this book and from my journey that might speak to young people today? And as I think back on it, I was born also, or grew up in my formative years in a time of crisis, the, the fear of, of nuclear catastrophe. And I vividly remember as a 16-year-old, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then suddenly seeing all of these shocking images of civil rights protesters being beaten up. Uh, and then the assassination of our president, uh, JFK. And, and then suddenly Vietnam was on the news every single night and, and protests every night. And then when, when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, cities erupting in flames. It was not so different than right now, a time of profound crisis. And so I really reflected on what did I need then? What did I seek out then? That made the critical difference for me. And there are three things. Number one, I needed community. And I finally found that in the third college I went to. I needed to be with people who supported, you know, who had, who had aspirations that were similar to my own, who, who also wanted to learn and engage and understand the world, and who were also similarly upset by the things that upset me. 
Secondly, I needed choices. I needed to make meaningful choices in my learning because from my point of view, the world was up in flames and the world made no sense whatsoever. And I needed to be able to make choices about a kind of learning that would help me make sense of the world around me. And finally, I needed voice. I needed to be encouraged to talk and to write about what my deepest thoughts and feelings were, to be encouraged to give voice to my aspirations and my idealism. And I was very fortunate to find all three of those to a varying degrees in the, the third college. I often wonder if that college hadn't existed, would I have ever even finished college? Would I have ever been able to make the contributions I've been able to make? And, and frankly, I don't know. So I guess the the one critical thing I would leave parents and teachers with today is community, voice, and choice. All of your kids are going to need that right now, whether they go back to school virtually or in person, whether they're at home for the summer, they need community, they need voice, and they need choice. Well, that's a great way to sort of finish the conversation. I do want to ask one sort of last question then is you mentioned you felt like one of the reasons you wrote a memoir is you felt like you'd said most of the things you wanted to say in the, in the other formats. And so you went to a memoir, but I have to ask, is there something that's on your mind next? Where do you want to go? Uh, where do you want to go next? Well, you know, I'm still wrestling with that a bit, but I'm very struck by this being sort of a, a crack in the, in, in, in the, the globe of history, if you will, at this particular moment with much less required testing, with all standardized tests basically being declared optional at, at least for the year. Even Harvard says, nope, no more SATs this year. The University of California say, no more SATs or ACTs ever. We suddenly have an opportunity to take back the dialogue, to take back the discourse as educators in this rare moment in history. The first question is, what do we think we should be held accountable for? You know, finally, that's not going to be determined extrinsically with all of these accountability high stakes tests, but then we're going to have to do it ourselves. And then secondly, how are we going to do that? How are we going to create communities of practice to solve problems of practice and hold one another accountable through reciprocal relational accountability? So I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to explore the new opportunities and new challenges that may be emerging right now in this moment in history. That's great. I'd read that. I look forward to having you on the show on the show again when we, we get to talk about that book. Tony, I want to thank you for your work. It's been a um, real benefit to me. And I'm grateful for your vulnerability of going this route and taking us behind the, the past books, uh, letting us know a little bit about the author um, who wrote those books. Um, so thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Thank you very much. And thank you for your great questions and a and a wonderful conversation. I hope we can do it again. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.